91.3 FM WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark in the great state of Delaware. I'm Bill Humphrey, and thanks for listening. The following episode was recorded on December 19th, 2016, and produced by me at my studio in Newton, Massachusetts. This week, in the second of our two-part series, Greg and Jonathan joined me to discuss the big philosophical questions surrounding how societies provide for people's health and what Democrats should be proposing as an alternative to destructive Republican plans. That's just ahead. Arsenal for Democracy is available for download on Wednesdays at arsenalfordemocracy.com and from iTunes. We air the show in Delaware on 91.3 FM and stream it from wvud.org on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Follow us on Twitter at AFD Radio or like us on Facebook. It's Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me again in studio this week is Jonathan Cohn. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me on. And again on the line, uh, as with last week's episode uh, from Virginia, is our health policy expert, Greg. Hey, Greg. Hey, Bill. Hey, everybody. Last week, we've been talking about the status quo situation on the Affordable Care Act, um, Medicaid, things like that. Um, In recent episodes, we've talked a little bit about the potential uh, voucherization proposal for Medicare, which would be very, very bad. Um, We've also talked about the potential Republican uh, repeal and replace proposals that may come out uh, over the next two years or so, depending. Um, It'll probably be put through relatively quickly, I think, but then, uh, you know, with a delayed uh, timeline of taking effect. Um, And we've also talked about the potential risks to the entire health insurance sector, which is that it may require a bailout or alternatively some sort of nationalization proposal. Um, We think that a bailout is probably a lot more likely coming from the Republicans, and I would argue also probably more likely even coming from the Democrats, because a lot of them have close ties donor-wise, et cetera, with the insurance industry. Um, And also, uh, it is probably... I don't know. There's there's some debate, I think, uh, in policy circles on whether it would be better to nationalize as is the health insurance uh, setup and just, you know, have basically a tightly regulated uh, nonprofit slash public health insurance system that's relatively similar to what we have, but just way less expensive versus switching to a completely different system. Um, But we want to talk this week about what we uh, potentially could be switching to, because as we've discussed, there are some issues with the Affordable Care Act, um, even regardless of what damage the Republicans decide to do. So we want to talk big ideas, as we do on Arsenal for Democracy. What should we be talking about uh, in the sphere of health policy? Now, this is something that Jonathan and I tend to talk about more philosophically, whereas Greg tends to talk about it from the brass tacks aspect. Um, and Jonathan, you've made the case on some recent episodes that we need to be thinking about, uh, how we provide healthcare in a somewhat different way, um, than some other services maybe, uh, because of how it functions in the economy. So I was wondering if you could maybe go over that a little bit, 
um, in sort of the abstract before we go to uh, Greg for backup on some of this. Yeah, I guess that's kind of the point that I'd made before in the way in which the way I'm kind of with health, health insurance and healthcare to me is kind of like part of like a basic infrastructure of the economy. Uh, it's the Affordable Care Act in many respects views health insurance as a consumer good. And that's not how I, at least how I interact with my health insurance plan. I'd say most people interact with an insurance plan. It's not a kit, like shopping for insurance if you have to do it on a health insurance marketplace. It's not something one would compare to buying new clothing or buying a couch or buying a new book. Whereas, let's say, in a case of, of those more consumer-oriented purchases, you have a vast array of goods. They differ in qualitative, on qualitative grounds, like how whether it's blue or yellow, or if it's sweet, salty, whether it's like funny, sad, whatever, Flor like floral stri striped. There, there are qualitative differences, and qualitative differences at every price level of the good. So if I gave you $100, you could, do many, you could get many different couches or different, like, different types of couches or number of couches. Uh, you, you, could do, you could go crazy with couches. <laughs> $100. Couches out the wazoo. Um, however, when it comes to health insurance, it's not a measure of – it's not a qualitative difference. It's what you end up ha having if, if you had $100 and that – and have, or you had a lump sum of money and to buy a health insurance plan, it's really only quantitative differences. It's only how much coverage can you get, how, like, how, like, how wide the network would be, what is, like, how many things you can get covered on there, which isn't really what a consumer good, at least from, from my perspective, really is. As well as the fact that with, with something like health insurance, everybody does, I, I would say, does need the same thing that people's differences are more of a matter of, that they're a matter of, say, if you might need something a little bit more intensively than, like, somebody else. But or some people need maternity care and, exactly. you know, childbirth care, and some people do not. Exactly. But at the same time, everybody do, does need to have, does need health insurance. And so it's just, you end up getting efficiency gains by having everybody insured kind of more collectively rather than having it on a one-off consumer, one consumer good perspective. And almost viewed in the sense that we view education as a universe, uh, or like say K to 12, that's something that we treat as like a fundamental infrastructure of society, of like an educational infrastructure. And health insurance, kind of, or healthcare broadly, is something that should function in that same way. Because just as you, need, you want people to be like, say, you want you need educated educated population to have let's say a functioning democracy. You also need healthy people to have that as well. Greg, did you want to weigh in with some of the you know policy aspects to back up that? So a lot of what we talk about in in health policy sort of comes from the perspective of we talk a lot about health in all policies. That's a big thing that I think is becoming sort of a mantra in the health policy community, and I think that that goes back to what. Jonathan was saying, which is, you know, you, you, you need health in order to do so many different functions of your day-to-day -day life. It's important um, socially, it's important economically, religiously, spiritually, essentially, if you don't have health, then you don't really have anything because people that aren't healthy can't work. They 
um, are, you know, uh, lower socioeconomic status, um, they're less educated, all of these things we can look at in society are sort of built on this foundation of health and the way that we treat health like a consumer good and not like a foundation of a functioning society I think is very problematic and I don't think I have anything to say from a, from a policy perspective. I think it's mostly philosophical, and I think that everybody in the health policy community does think this, that from a philosophical perspective, that health is the most important thing and is from the thing from which almost every other societal aspect springs. The reason that I draw a distinction sometimes between the policy and philosophy sides of this is that uh, we have, as I've argued before, sort of allowed some of the uh, uh, wonkish technocrats to take over our politics mm -hmm. and at the expense of like having a, a baseline discussion of what we're attempting to do in our society. Yeah. Um, you know, that I think that's how you end up getting a narrow, a really narrow focus on like how do we you know, what is it, bend the cost curve downward, or how do we slightly reduce the millions of people that are uninsured without having like that big picture conversation uh, on what we're actually attempting to do as a society. Um, and I think that's the other problem too, is, you know, this is, a, this is a country that has a lot of really serious fundamental philosophical divides that have existed since the start of it, you know, especially uh, in terms of how we, you know, uh, what what are things that are individual responsibilities? What are things that are collective responsibilities? And um, it is already difficult enough to sell complicated policies like the Affordable Care Act to the public and say this is this is actually good and on balance you're benefiting from it. Um, it's even harder if you don't do the necessary legwork to say everyone in this country should have health care. Mm -hmm. um, and and what does that mean? And I, I think that you know the Democrats especially have fallen victim to. Uh, jumping in without having the conversation first on what they're trying to do. I, th I think this has been a major weakness of the of the Democrats, like you were saying, because a lot of the things that I've seen, and this goes back to what we were talking about last week with the Republican repeal efforts, is sort of universal coverage is not the end goal. Because and the and the Republicans that are saying this, the conservatives that are saying this are making a distinction between health coverage and health care, which I think is disingenuous because I don't think they care about either, really, because I think that they think that it's an individual thing that the government doesn't really need to provide people. But there is, I think, a legitimate distinction between coverage versus care, whereas and that's something I mean, that yeah, we've we seen. didn't we didn't even talk on the yeah. on the episode we just did uh, last week. We didn't talk about the, the deductibles problem, which right. is that, you know, that uh, people even people who got who got coverage under the Affordable Care Act, a lot of them couldn't access it. And that's certainly something that was especially true in uh, rural areas, in really high poverty areas, things like that. You could get to a point where people had some sort of coverage. Um, but then could not actually pay for any of the necessary treatments. They could go and get checked up and find out what was wrong with them, but they couldn't necessarily do anything about it. And at that point, right. you're, you know, 
Because you'll you'll always get these people who are like, yes, it costs us so much more than other countries, but we're so much better at treating cancer or whatever, or, you know, these specialty things. And whether or not that's true, and I'm not an expert on that angle, the fact that we have people dying of highly treatable, highly preventable uh, conditions is arguably, and I have to emphasize that word arguably, is arguably a, a worse, I mean, it's a worse outcome, right? And, and unfortunately not everyone even agrees on that point because because many of them say no we should be having the you know it should be based on what people can afford to access and we should be trying to have the most high tech and the most innovative treatment in the world etc and the way that you ration it out essentially is by how much can people afford to pay for whereas in other countries you're you are rationing along a much more collectivist axis and saying no everyone should have a basic standard of care everyone should have basic access to you know this list of 10 20 100 diseases that they're that they're going we're going to treat them for and you don't worry about whether or not some of the the less common things or the more expensive things are a major problem because uh, you are much more concentrated on providing that sort of baseline universal uh, care for the basics, which is to go to, you know, back to your point, Jonathan, it's that comparison with like, you know, because you you started to say education and then clarified to say K through 12 education. I think that's an important distinction, which is yeah. that even in our country, we've said K through 12 education, mm-hmm. which it used to be one through 12 education. We yeah. expanded it. But K through 12 education, that's a fundamental piece of public infrastructure, essentially, or social infrastructure, mm-hmm. we'll call it. And that, that it's the building block of our society. In other countries, they're saying yeah, and similarly, just as you don't cover, you know, they they cover college, maybe you know, university. Yeah. We don't. We also don't cover pre-K childcare in mm-hmm. most places, and that's something that you know is another conversation to have. That's another philosophical issue. But you can say in other countries that they've made the decision that everyone should be mm-hmm. treated for this, you know, these basic things, and we're not so concerned about some of the other issues and you do i think have some mortality higher mortality on some on some type of things in other countries um i don't know if greg knows any off the top of his head but i don't certainly um and i know that's like a that's the the problem is that is a tough that's a tough sale to make to the public right that some people some people are not going to get you know things that they were getting and some people are going to get some but that's the problem is if you try to if you try to make everything into this like wonkish technocratic approach and you don't have that big public conversation and you know and campaign on these things and and make your case you're never going to persuade the public that you should be doing things a certain way that you're not doing them right and and so we have to be having uh that conversation just two quick things when I, the the whole issue of not being the the lingering cost of actually using care just reminded me of the high rate of medical bankruptcy that yeah. we have mm-hmm. in the U.S. and like particularly in, Mass- in, in Massachusetts, I know Mass- has a high rate of medical bankruptcy, as well as in, in, even in talking about and then going to your point about how Democrats have messaged or campaigned around the Affordable Care Act. One thing that has always bothered me is when they act as though we've already achieved u- universality. Oh yeah, and. We haven't. There are still people who are who are un, remain uninsured, and there's a high underinsurance rate because of people's inability to, to actually afford the coverage. And so it's a problem when you speak of having already achieved universality when you haven't, and at the same time you're discounting some of the stuff that we talked about before of the positive things about the bill, like the Medicaid expansion, about being able to 
uh, stay on your insurer until age 26, like on your parents' plan until age 26, etc. Uh, and then trying to sell the bill as something that it actually isn't. Right. That Yeah, there are these good aspects, but there are these problems and areas where it fell short, some of it not intentionally, right? Things yeah. like the, uh, you know, uh, the Medicaid expansion, it was not intended to, to yeah. operate that way, um, you know, and, and there have been other implementation issues as well, which could have been corrected if we had functional, rational members of Congress who understood how to fix things once they're in place, but they didn't have any interest in letting it, you know, cement yeah. into place. Um but, you know, the other thing, too, is so we've been talking we talked last uh, in the last week's episode about this idea of death spirals. Um, and that's something that we've talked a little bit about this week as well. Um, but, you know, there is also, I think, a, a school of thought in some Democratic circles and some people slightly to the left of the Democratic Party, which is that these death spirals should essentially be encouraged um, by implementing certain provisions. Uh, for example, there is a provision that says, um, and this one I don't think is, is a death spiral. This is just a normal regulation, um, but basically was limiting overhead and executive compensation and yeah. marketing costs as a percentage. Mm -hmm. And so of the percentage, a percentage of premiums collected has to go back in the form of actual care rather than just fluffy whatever's or, or around the insurance sector. That's called the medical loss ratio requirement. I don't think that that is actually causing a death spiral, but many of the companies have blamed it uh, as part of their decisions for withdrawing from certain markets. Um, similarly, I would very much like to see, you know, we can, I think we're going to talk in just a few minutes about some much bigger proposals, but I think that if you are a Democrat who does not want to go in the direction of single payer or something like that, um, and you need to, you know, and you want to come up with some sort of like further reforms along the status quo, uh, you should probably be campaigning on the elimination of the concept of deductibles, significant rollbacks on that. And the response that I've gotten to that is, uh, well, that would kill the private insurance industry, to which I, yes, Jonathan's making the single tear rolling down his cheek <laughs> motion, um, which is, yeah, I mean, that's the the interesting thing uh, is that, I, and I think this is a um, perhaps an oversight by some left activists, which is the tremendous power in policy circles of seizing upon a popular, I will call the middle step. Uh, without talking about what comes after. And you figure out what's going to get you to where you want to be um, by forcing your hand by implementing the middle step. You find something that's really popular, um, you know, whether it's uh, covering pre-existing conditions, uh, whether it's eliminating deductibles, whether it's any of these other steps that are that are going to be very publicly popular and have a genuinely positive impact for the public, but are not necessarily good for the private insurance sector, you can then... Uh, essentially force a death spiral or something like that, force the hand of the government to make a change. The question then is, well, or are they just going to do more and more bailouts? Bill, you got to edit, you got to edit this out. This is a secret. We, we can't, we can't tell them this. I'm broadcasting my, my <laughs> devious master plan for taking down the private health insurance. But no, I mean, you know, that's the thing is, it's like, I would rather have, honestly, I would rather have the big conversations about whether it should be about for profit, right? Private for profit, uh, fully public system, something like that. I want to have those big conversations on those, uh, as I'll call them, the the end step, yeah. right? Uh, as opposed to having the conversation on the middle step. But I do think that having a conversation on middle steps is sometimes important. And you, you know, the 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 comparison, and it's not a perfect comparison. The comparison that I like to make is that this happens in the foreign policy side all the time. They will constantly force 
a end stage outcome by pursuing a middle step without having the discussion. That is actually what we're seeing, I would argue, in Syria right now with mm-hmm. all the we have to do something, whether it's about Aleppo mm-hmm. or the situation in general. Uh, we have to do something. And I always say, and then what? Yeah. Because I know that what they're doing is they're 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 rallying as many people as possible onto that easy popular middle step without having the conversation oh, what about comes what comes next? next because then they can force various outcomes whether it's giving additional arms or whatever military supplies or more direct military interventions um, potentially invading the country. You know, I think there is a range of what people want to do who are advocating for that. But if you don't have that end stage conversation and you only make yeah. policy based on the the quote unquote middle step, then you know y- you are you are forcing certain outcomes to happen. And the foreign yeah, policy tendency. national security community in Washington does that all the time, or especially the lobbyists for you know okay. various interests. They they do that all the time. Um, and the question is, why is the left not necessarily pushing that as a tactic sometimes? Uh, again, I think, though, most of us would prefer to have uh, the bigger conversations on this. Um, and uh, so that's what I want to go to. We're going to go to a break in just a second, but then we're going to come back and talk about uh, uh, briefly um, this proposal that has been floated. Um, you know, it was something that Sanders talked about a lot in the campaign, Medicare for All, but there have been some people who have been talking about it, specifically tying it in with uh, some of the stuff around the inauguration. So I want to talk briefly about that, um, and then we'll uh, we'll uh, wrap up uh, on this topic. Uh, so Arsenal for Democracy will be back in just a moment from arsenalfordemocracy.com and WVUD. Stick around. You're still listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Still in studio with me is Jonathan Cohn. On the line with me from Virginia is Greg. We're talking this hour again about health policy and where we go from here. Um, So on the last week's episode, we talked about a lot about what the Republicans might do. In the first part of this episode, we've been talking about what are some smaller steps that Democrats could potentially be pushing, as well as uh, just the the broader philosophical questions. And I want to get into one of those broader philosophical questions. There is a camp that has been pushing uh, Medicare for all. Um, this is something that people like Senator Sanders have supported, you know, and he supported it during his presidential campaign. But there are people who are saying along the same lines that we've been saying on all our episodes here, uh, which is that um, even if we don't have the chance of passing these various things, uh, we should absolutely be uh, messaging alternatives. And I think that this is going to tie up in a nice little bow a whole bunch of things we've talked about here because we've talked about uh, or we've kept alluding to the fact that Republicans want to turn Medicare into a uh, private voucher system. And I'll let Greg explain that in just a moment uh, briefly of what that w- like what that actually means. Um, but the there are some folks who are saying, you know, around the time of the inauguration um, and and then continuing after that, we should be making the case uh, for expanding uh, Medicare for all. And I also want to talk about what that means, because I know there's been various Mm -hmm. proposals over the years floated of what they mean by Medicare for all, whether it's genuinely Medicare covering everyone or whether it's just uh, allowing everyone to have the option of joining Medicare, essentially making it like a public option, sort of. Um, And I but I think that's going to be really important, because if, in fact, as Paul Ryan has threatened, they're going to be pushing voucherization of Medicare toward the end of January, it would be great for us to be talking about the 
uh, complete opposite direction of what we could be doing with Medicare, how we could both strengthen uh, at Medicare and make sure that it's, you know, fiscally stable and everything, but also provide a much better uh, uh, system for a lot of people. Uh, so, Greg, why don't you briefly explain first what the uh, proposal is from the Republicans to do with Medicare and then uh, explain to us what um, uh, the sort of left advocates are saying we should do with Medicare instead. Okay. So I think particularly something that, as you said before, Paul Ryan has uh, been a proponent of, but in addition to that, congressmen from uh, suburban Atlanta, Georgia, um, and now potential uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services, if he is confirmed, Tom Price, who is himself a physician, has been a large proponent of, is the voucherization of Medicare, which would essentially disband Medicare as we know it and give people who are over the age of 65 and presumably eligible or, 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 or presumably eligible for Medicare for various other reasons, whether it's disability, they have ALS or, or something, they have end-stage renal disease, would give them a, uh, a voucher that they could go and buy private health insurance on the private insurance market. Um, and then on the flip side of that, and this is sort of stark in the contrast where we saw this discussion of Medicare for all during the prime, the Democratic primary campaign. And now, you know, unfortunately, we're talking about potentially trying to uh, prevent the, the voucherization of Medicare, but Medicare for all depending on who's talking about it. But I, I think my conceptualization of Medicare for all is essentially do I want to do I want to say single payer? Or do I want to say public option? <laughs> what do you think, Bill? Which which do you think, Jonathan, is the one that's predominantly pushed? putting everyone into medicare or allowing everyone into medicare predominantly pushed by whom i think that well, for the, the current most... discussion i guess so i think if you're talking about i also don't know what the, the sanders proposal was the sanders proposal was one requiring states to implement a single-payer proposal although his proposals have changed the presidential proposal yeah because his isn't doing it on the national level it's just a national mandate on on states and through various Things, if I remember correctly. No, they said Medicare for all at the debates. Yeah, but that's... But what does that mean? Yeah, it, Medicare right. for all can mean many things. It just... Medicare for all message is better than single payer. Oh, okay. So um, Med Medicare is... If you're talking in the U.S. about a plan that is... I think that, that is, is true. universal for a, for a segment of the population. Whereas, like, Medicare is... It's not universal, but it's universal above a certain age. Even the, and it covers like, so anybody who over that age you're automatically covered you're automatically eligible you're automatically covered as opposed to Medicaid which is means test like granted there's means testing in Medicare but Medicaid are, has that's true. has an income related like you have to be below this income whereas Medicare it doesn't matter okay and that's why Medicare for all is often not so much is not always just adding everybody onto Medicare or allowing anybody to get on Medicare. It's often used as a better way to talk about single pair because it's single pair can be confusing or that's a fair point. Uh, and and it also people use single payer to mean lots of different things too. It has a specific meaning, but yeah. in the US context, people will discuss single payer in terms of a uh, system like the UK, which is single payer, where everything is owned directly by the government, et cetera, versus uh, Canada, where it's a national health insurance. So there's a, a loan health insurance provider, I think. Yeah, well, um, that, that's that's yeah, one payer. Right. So there, th but there, yeah, there's. But there's differences within the delivery. Right, exactly. Um, uh, okay, well, so 
so Greg, uh, I'm not sure whether the people who are currently pushing, you know, this new push that's going to happen around the inauguration, I haven't looked into the details as to whether or not they're pushing uh, everyone getting added into Medicare versus everyone being able to join Medicare, uh, which right. would be more like a public option. Could you just discuss what those two different versions would essentially mean? Right. So Medicare for all, as conceptualized by uh, a public option, would essentially mean that you don't have to be over 65. You don't have to have a disability like ALS or end-stage renal disease or something like that in order to buy into Medicare. It would be a health insurance plan that you could buy just like you could buy Aetna, just like you could buy Blue Cross Blue Shield. And you would receive your um, health care from the government. You could do it just like that. Whereas if we're talking about Medicare for all as single payer, that wouldn't be an option. That would be, you know, everybody would. And, and, and it's, it's important to note that the public option would theoretically, at least initially, not destroy the private health insurance market. Right. So they could, again, theoretically coexist. But I think that this is, again, one of these middle steps that we're talking about where, you know, if people decide, oh, actually, Medicare is kind of really good, then eventually, you know, the private health insurance industry would die off. That's the public option, though. So at least initially, they would exist in, you know, congruent with one another. Whereas if we're talking about single-payer Medicare for all. That would mean basically a dismantling of the current um, private health insurance market, and thus everyone would be um, insured by Medicare. And I think that it's, you know, like we said earlier, just an easier way to conceptualize single-payer because single-payer is, I think, confusing to some people, whereas Medicare, which is something that pretty much everybody is familiar with, even if they're not 65, they, they sort of understand what, what goes on there. The government pays for your health insurance. And uh, yeah. Now, let's say that it's that um, middle step version where it's essentially a public option that people could, instead of purchasing health insurance on the exchange, if they're above the Medicaid coverage line, that they would have the option of I guess, what, probably paying a relatively modest premium into Medicare, and then they could use the right. Medicare services as necessary. Obviously, in, in past episodes, I think particularly in tw some 2015 episodes, you had come on the show to talk about genuine problems that do exist within Medicare in terms of, uh, you know, how things are priced and the sort of like opaque bodies that make decisions about how things are priced and things like that. There are certainly uh, real issues, but... Um, you know, barring significant changes, we'll say, um, what what would be what would be entailed by people joining, uh, opting into Medicare if if that were an option for them as as an alternative plan? And I don't, I also I don't know whether it would be structured as a premium or just some sort of a tax you know thing or something. I think right now it's essentially paid for by younger workers payroll taxes yeah that's right but i would imagine that if they opened it to younger people they would probably be charging some sort of premium i'm guessing because they have to get more revenue in to help cover that but presumably it's younger and healthier people that are getting added in what what impact would that have on the program that certainly would make the risk pool a lot healthier i mean right now one of the problems with medicare is that like because 
it is pe- for people who are 65 and older and are you know incredibly disabled um, from ALS, from end stage renal disease, these types of things. That the risk pool is is quite sick because it's old and it's you know by definition sick. So if there was an influx of healthy people who were you know didn't have ALS, weren't 65, were maybe 25, that would probably be a boon to the Medicare system, if I had to guess. And could that potentially solve some of the uh, purported solvency issues that many conservative critics level against Medicare? I think it's very possible that it could, yeah. Now, what are some of the potential downsides, if any, uh, to essentially adding in people to the med? Is there, you know, it, what what are the knock-on effects, I guess, of adding people to this? Huh. Well, I mean, you know, from uh, the standpoint of uh, riling up very, very powerful interest groups in um, the United States. Well, that's the... not necessarily a bad thing. It, it is right. just a thing that we have to be aware of. It's a thing. It's a thing that we do need to be aware of. And and I and I think that it is important to acknowledge the fact that pri- the private health insurance industry is very, very, very powerful. I mean, the reason that the Affordable Care Act is kind of not as good as it could have been and doesn't include a public option in the first place is because those interest groups are so powerful. And they basically, you know, held... Um, the, the the Congress people over a barrel and said, you know, like, we don't we don't want a public option and the public option was dropped. So that would be something that uh, Medicare for all as a public option, as conceptualized as a public option, would have to deal with. And then there's also another issue, which is and this is probably a very a, a very minor issue, but it's it's something to consider. And that is that we've seen Medicare participation among physicians actually decrease, right? And I would suspect because there would be more people participating in Medicare, but that Medicare and Medicaid generally pay physicians less for their services than private health insurance does that there would probably be more physicians that would opt out of participating in medicare which again is a network issue only to the extent that like medicare almost has 100 percent market penetration i mean it's like you know like 90 percent of physicians participate in medicare whereas if you're talking about like aetna or blue cross blue shield any of the top for um, largest private health insurance companies in the United States, they don't even touch that. It's not even close to 90%. But if, you know, we added more people to the, the Medicare roles, I would suspect that we would probably see the, the participation in Medicare go down, probably not to the point that uh, private health insurance would go. But I think that, you know, because that would expand the pool of people that had access to health insurance so dramatically. And it would probably overload 
a lot of physicians because there is a physician shortage in this in this country um, that there would probably be a retraction in uh, the network that that Medicare would uh, potentially, you know, give you access to. Um, yeah, maybe they'd have to do like they did, except uh, more directly, um, you know, with the Affordable Care Act had the provisions involving student loan reform. They may have to include some sort of giveaway to physicians directly, um, you know, something, uh, a major overhaul of either medical loan, you know, medical school loan debt um, or something like that, um, although that's not the only factor that you know, prompts people, or they could provide some sort of special incentive program that says if you become a Medicare doctor, essentially, that you would get, you know, X, Y, and Z benefits that other doctors don't necessarily get. Jonathan, you wanted to weigh in on some of this? I think the one thing I was just trying to remember, the fact that I know that the issue of Medicare payments to doctors has come up in a number of the like, kind of almost like fiscal cliff issues that Congress has had over the past however many years. And I'm just trying to remember the exact details of what those were because that's something that they that keeps coming up because it's not like a... It, the, the, I forget. Do you, uh, Greg, do you know how that uh, payment to, to doc, doctors is determined via Medicare? Because I know that there's, a, there's a, some form of calculation. Yeah, so th- there's like... Uh essentially uh, a group of of like 50 some odd physicians that determine um based on where you are what you're doing um and sort of like your practice needs um or how like big your practice is how much you would get for like a a particular procedure or, or providing a particular service or what have you and you know largely what we see is some of like the the more powerful sort of interest groups are the ones that are pushing for their specializations to be rewarded or compensated more highly. I think you're also talking potentially about the doc fix issue, which for a number of years, Congress had said, all right, this is the growth curve of Medicare, and we think that it's, you know, outrageous. So we're only going to let the growth of Medicare increase at this quote unquote sustainable growth rate, right? Which was a certain percentage and that it couldn't increase from a a certain percentage, um, you know, between years. But every single year, Congress would pass this quote unquote doc fix, right? Because um, the, the medical community is a very powerful interest group. And they would always say like, you know, like this is ridiculous. Like we, that this sustainable growth rate is not paying us enough and, you know, we need to be paid this much. And so very quickly, once you pass the doc fix one year, then you started deviating from the curve that they wanted to do the sustainable growth rate at. And then the next year, it just became an exponentially worse and worse and worse problem. And so last year, they decided no more doc fixes. We're just going to get rid of the sustainable growth rate entirely. And so there is this issue of Medicare payments maybe increasing at a rate that uh, is not quote unquote sustainable. I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, like, there's they call it the sustainable growth rate. I, I think that it's very possible that if we expanded Medicare and like we said earlier, made the risk pool healthier, made some of those people that were the healthiest people in the risk pool pay premiums into it that, you know, if the 
the growth rate was not even close to the sustainable growth rate, then it might be okay. Uh, I'm going to ask two questions to Jonathan and the same two questions to Greg to wrap this up. The first question is, big picture, shoot for the moon. If you have to advocate for something or Democrats have to advocate for something on the health policy front, you know, that that is uh, the best, we'll say, alternative that can be argued against something like voucherization of Medicare or something like that, which that's crazy, by the way, too, because considering how many people, especially when they started it and still today are living in poverty at that age, I don't understand how you're supposed to be like, oh, yeah, we're just going to give a block grant to go get private insurance for a pool that no one wants to cover. And these people don't have that much money to pay for stuff. But anyway, that's a side tangent. So first question, as I said, is what's your your you know shoot for the moon what like the the thing that you think would be the most productive big picture thing to advocate for as the alternative um, to the Republican agenda and second question is what is your preferred sort of middle step option if you can't get Democrats on board with the really big ticket item what should the, what should they be arguing instead for so jonathan i'll start with you and then we'll go to greg so and then we'll end the episode okay i kind of going with the two points i kind of see a public option and single payer as somewhat akin to like a public option kind of functions as that middle step toward achieving single payer because if you are if it, it does end up being a far more competitive plan like a much more efficient plan a more affordable more attractive plan than to private for profit insurance you end up creating a pathway toward having a, just a single a single government provided plan for the majority of the population. Most places they have like there are ways of like the delivery is a whole not as a whole different issue of itself. When you have single payer, it's done like differently by country, as you noted before, with like Canada versus the UK, etc. And even the way that the whole like the fact like of whether or not it is going to be like a fully government managed plan, I'd probably lean that way. Or you have various alternatives of having not-for-profit providers get their the money from the government. Um, and one thing that's also just in terms of the Medicare issues, I think Democrats should be legitimately arguing for um, allowing the government to negotiate for drug prices with Medicare. They dropped that in the Affordable Care Act because they wanted to get ph the pharmaceutical industry on board. And I think that's something that it's very popular. Uh, nobody likes paying a lot of money for, for medications. And that's also something that is a positive step forward in terms of like in terms of cost control. Although I probably would love to yeah. see the pharmaceutical industry nationalized. Right. Well, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, that's that's you know on that front, that is a big ticket, big picture. You know, big idea is you nationalize the pharmaceutical development industry, provide yeah. them basically close to unlimited resources for research and development, but then they don't spend you know huge exorbitant marketing. sums on marketing mm -hmm. and executive compensation and things like that. The problem, of course, with that is that like the private sector will always come up with the gigantic sums of money for research and development yeah. that they want to, whereas it becomes very much easier to just, when things get tight, to say, oh, no, we're going to cancel this, you know, big grant of funding for research and development. And, you know, that, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that, that's the type of thing that Republicans would, would certainly love to target. Um, also, to your point, I think there is, there is a potential case to be made instead of going the single payer route of, uh, and this is, this is, I, I am not personally advocating for this because I don't like to go in with a pre a huge pre compromise, mm -hmm. but basically that if you were to convert the basically nationalized, but if you were to convert the private insurance industry, uh, to regulated not for profits, yeah. um, we have a hospital sector that is 
in many areas, primarily not for profit already or nonprofit. Yeah. They do just fine, fine. you know, yeah. money wise. They are raking it in. They have offshore bank accounts. They have highly compensated executives. executives. Yeah. It is not an ideal system to say the least, but it is a potential way that you could say, look, you're not going to be making these gigantic profits, but you're going to be doing almost everything you were doing before. It's just going to be a slightly different structure and with substantially yeah. more regulation. Like a utility. Yeah. Um, that that would sort of be like the m- easiest conversion if the in- insurance industry starts to collapse, but remains retains enough power to mm-hmm. um, block uh, things. And the power may come in the form of too big to fail. That yeah. may be the kind of leverage. Okay. Uh, to wrap it up, Greg, uh, your big idea and your middle step that you want to advocate for. Well, I mean, I, I kind of wish that I went first because I really like all those ideas and I probably would have picked those ideas had I gone first. Um, yeah, you can say the same. That's okay. <laughs> it, is it? Is it? As well, they yeah, say, I mean, great so, minds think alike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to be like too homogenous on here, but, you know, I mean, I think from my perspective, you know, my end goal is single payer and I don't think that it's ever going to change. I think that I'm going to do this for the rest of my life and I, I hope that I live to see single payer. Um, I know that's not the end all be all, right? But, um, you know, and, and the nationalization of the pharmaceutical industry, that would be, you know, a, a really, a really amazing thing too. I think, I think from my perspective, like the, the public option does seem to be this middle step that gets these people on board where they start thinking, okay, the government is capable of providing health insurance for a large swath of people. Wait a minute. This doesn't make any sense that we're not doing this for everybody. And I think, you know, I hope that we have that light bulb moment, right? I hope that we go with the public option and then I hope we have that light bulb moment and then we just sort of like scrap the entire private insurance industry. I know this is kind of dicey. This is dicey for me to say this because, you know, I'm in health policy, but maybe I go work for a private insurance company at some point. I hope I don't, and I don't want to, but, you know, and hopefully they'll never listen to this. We're going to have to delete the entire episode because I also gave away my master plan for destroying the insurance industry. Seize the Um, means of health insurance production. Yeah. I was also just going to, this is the note that I'm going to end on. Um, You know, I think there were some misconceptions of like the people pushing Medicare for all or Bernie Sanders or whatever that that it was limited to like a, you know, relatively narrow cadre of very progressive or even socialist, you know, voters uh, and members of the electorate. Um, I would just note that I firmly believe, you know, and not just based on the anecdotal evidence of conversations with my cousin's husband, who's very conservative in Maine, but I firmly believe that there is a significant population of the country that is quite conservative, um, but is not ideologically opposed to uh, government-provided health care, you know, partly because you can explain to them, like, you know, it would be simpler to just have one provider and, you know, one giant, you know, efficiency of scale operation, that sort of thing, um, and that everyone should have it and it should be simple and straightforward. but but more importantly, conservatives who believe this that they are that they are more willing to accept a privately run, funded, operated health system than a mandate to purchase a product from a private corporation. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I I I do I I firmly believe that there is a large population that their primary resentment toward things like Obamacare 
was actually, I don't want to be forced to pay for, you know, a corporate product that I don't have any choice in because there's not that many options. And, you know, I'm being told to do this under penalty of something, you know, and, and maybe I'm overstating that, but I think that you can get a lot of people on board with saying, yeah, the system we have is broken. The answer is not. And this is true for both many Democrats and many Republicans. The answer is not, uh, here you're going to be you're going to face a penalty if you don't buy a private product that you don't want that's also not that good yeah. because of the deductible issue. That's the sticking point. I really do think that most people that identify as conservative aren't ideologically opposed to the government providing things in general. I just think they're ideologically opposed to the government providing things because the experience that they've had with the government providing things is that the things that the government provides suck, right? Yeah. And so if the government provided something good, they wouldn't be ideologically opposed to it. They wouldn't be like, oh, well, you know, uh, this is good, but this goes against, you know, this this concept that I have that the government shouldn't provide this service. No, no, no. That's not what they're saying. They're just saying that, like, they think that the government can't do it. We need to show them that it can and do it well. All right. Well, that's going to uh, take us to the close on this week's episode um, as we head into the new year with all that awaits us there. Uh, okay. Greg, thank you so much for being on this week and last week to bring us your health policy knowledge. Thanks for having me. And Jonathan, thanks for being here in studio to talk about these philosophical issues. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Enjoy the show. That's all the time we have this week. Tweet us your comments at AFD Radio or email AFDRadio at gmail.com. The show is available for download from arsenalfordemocracy.com on Wednesdays. You can also hear it on the air in Delaware from 91.3 FM WVUD, WVUD HD1, and WVUD HD2 Newark every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can get additional commentary at arsenalfordemocracy.com daily, as well as links to articles discussed today. From my studio in Newton, Massachusetts, I'm Bill Humphrey, and I approve this message. Good night. Thank you.